These were our dollar bills, bartered, traded, and coveted. I remember my older brother was once trying to strike a deal with a young neighborhood boy, making a trade for an Ed Belfour rookie card, a very desirable item. And with this younger boy, my brother, a little bit older, more savvy, worked out a steal of a deal. It was basically straight up robbery, <laughs> pennies on the dollar. I remember exulting with my brother as we walked home and enjoying a few dear moments with rookie Ed Belfour until a knock at the door. The neighbor father <laughs> stood there with the pittance my brother had traded in hand, no deal undoing the transaction. Though our young friend did not recognize the value of what he had, his father did. In these opening verses of Romans 5, Paul articulates this statement of value. He describes the value of what we have in Christ through him, by justification, by faith. And the picture of all that he describes is staggering. All that is ours, yours and mine, gained in Christ. That phrase, through Christ our Lord, appears here and then six more times over the next four chapters, outlining, enumerating the ways that we are blessed, the value of all that we have in Jesus. It's overwhelming. And this morning, what I'd like for us to do is to listen to this passage so that we might get a refreshing new grasp of the incredible value of all that Jesus has done, of all that is ours in him. I'd like to do this by grouping our time around two headings. First, in the realm of God's peace and grace, in the realm of grace, and second, a new way to suffer. As we dive in, let me just quickly pray for us. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for these words that you inspired by your Holy Spirit for the Apostle Paul to write. And we ask now that that same spirit present to us would enliven our hearts, open our minds to see the truth of who you are, Jesus, and all that you have done for us, such that we would be changed, O oh Lord. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So two terms dominate the opening verses as Paul describes what is ours, what justification by faith has established for us. Peace and grace. Peace to our ears probably sounds like the absence of conflict, the cessation of hostilities. A peace treaty is signed, right? And there's clearly that sense here. The idea that we've seen established over the first chapters of Romans is that we who have made ourselves enemies of God, fallen short, law abiders and law ignorers, in our self-destructive impulses, we've, we've set ourselves at rebellion against God's good vision for our flourishing. And now, Paul writes, we have peace. Where there once was alienation, where there once was enmity, there now is reconciliation. But true peace, of course, means more than just the absence of conflict, more than its ending. And that's certainly the case when the Bible describes peace. When the Bible uses the word peace, it speaks of, of right relationship, of ordered harmony, of justice. 
It speaks of this good intended working together of all things. Within the Old Testament, this vision of peace is described by prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel as this far-off goal, the end of history, God's covenant of peace, this future accomplishment where unrighteousness, injustice, God will deal with and then usher in this new era, this era of peace, where he relates differently to his creation, to his people. And Paul's claim is that those who are in Christ, justified by faith, are now brought forward into that era, into that longed-after future moment. To set your trust in Jesus is to be brought into this different way of relating with God, where the reality of your sin and mine, our unrighteousness, has been dealt with by Jesus fully and finally. The verbs here, they're past tense. They suggest completed action. It is finished, Jesus says, and brought into the era of peace where God has given himself in friendship to you. Paul here is using peace in this particular way. Elsewhere, when he writes of peace, he'll sometimes write about it in ways that we might think of as like, peace of mind, all right, a sense of well-being. But here he writes of this more ontological, objective thing. Those are grandiose words. But what I simply mean is that Paul here is speaking of something that just is. Regardless of how you might feel on any given day, regardless of what your circumstances are or your brain chemistry leads you to believe, to be justified by faith is to be at peace. It's detached from the changes we experience in an insecure world. It's detached from our sense of how well we might be doing, how holy we are, how much we have it together. If you have set your faith in Christ, you have peace with God. Something has happened. You stand in this different kind of place. I remember, I think I've shared this before with the church, but I remember years ago commenting to a spiritual director that I had that it felt to me like the natural waters of my life, like the waters I inhabited mentally, spiritually, emotionally, were just condemning and anxious. That when circumstances were difficult, it seemed my immediate thought was that in some way the universe was conspiring against me. I found myself anticipating the worst and assuming that the worst was probably what I deserved. It was my fault. Certain things had happened to me in my life, messages I had absorbed, and, and ways of thinking I had cultivated led me to this kind of settled disposition. That experience, I don't think, is uncommon. I know it's not uncommon. And Paul's conviction here, as he writes about peace, and especially as he writes about grace, is that that kind of thinking does not reflect the reality of what we've been given through Jesus, of what actually is true in Jesus. In him, he writes, we have access to stand in grace. That language is spatial. Think about getting into a room where you don't belong, being ushered into this place of privilege. Think of space being opened up for you in a conversation, in a room, Think of how good that feels. 
Think of God, the author of all things, the giver of good gifts, making space for you at his table. Not on account of your own efforts, your own worth. That would mean your place is always insecure, right? In question. You would not be able to stand. The language of standing is the language of confidence and ease. It's on account of his unconditioned generosity, totally out of line with who we are, where we're at. Those justified by faith stand in God's high regard, his favorable judgment in this privileged position. Grace, peace, these are the dominant and characteristic qualities in which the followers of Jesus now live. Grace is the beginning and end of following after Christ. It's as though you were baptized, maybe as a child, and you never got dry. The grace soaked into you such that it could never be wrung out. Those who are justified by faith stand saturated in the grace of God. That's the dominant, norm-creating characteristic for those who set their hope in Jesus. When it comes to this description of grace and peace with God, as I said, Paul kind of detaches it from our own subjective experience, our own feelings. But it is difficult to imagine a more impactful, life-changing conviction than this. That the author the, of all things, the creator of all things, the giver of good gifts, is favorably disposed to you. It's hard to imagine something being more impactful for how we view ourselves, how we view the world around us. That he is making room for you, that he is disposed to give good things to you. And what I want to encourage you in today is that part of the obedience of faith is to have our minds transformed by this truth. Last week, Father Nick talked about drawing near to truth in our minds, like saturating our minds with the truth that our faith might be built up. And this week, I want to double down on that and encourage you to cultivate this conscious awareness of God's grace. Think of the practice of thanksgiving. The practice of remembering, naming all that is true, all that God has done for you in Jesus. Think of coming to this table where we have bodily contact with grace. Think of living in community with others who are signs, means of God's grace to us. Such that our hearts, our minds are transformed by the truth of where we stand. The truth of all he's done for us, that we live in the realm of God's peace and grace. The second thing I want to highlight from our passage this morning is that in Jesus, we have a new way to suffer. That probably doesn't sound too promising. But Paul does not suggest that in Jesus, we have this force field that makes us immune to suffering. In our gospel reading this morning, it's precisely because they are with Jesus that the disciples encounter the storm that so tests their faith. To be with Jesus, following after him, often means plunging further in to the storms of life. 
What Paul suggests, however, is that those justified by faith through Jesus have received this new, this transformed way to engage with suffering, with difficulty, with uncertainty. In a fallen and broken world, suffering is inevitable. Yet those justified by faith, for those justified by faith, such suffering can not only be endured, but can be rejoiced or gloried in. Verses two through four suggest two reasons for why we might rejoice, we might glory in the face of suffering. First is the hope of the glory of God, and second, that in the context of that hope, suffering can be used to good ends, to the production of endurance, character, and virtue. I once read the account of a highly experienced interrogator. This individual had worked using kind of psychological methods, even what we might call enhanced interrogation, to glean information, even confessions from prisoners and captives. It was not a very pleasant read. But what I hope relates to our reading this morning <laughs> was the interrogator's account of how people often broke, how they came to confess or cooperate against their will. The interrogator described how captives' body language would change and how their eyes would search for a fixed point on the wall or the floor, their eyes moving to lay hold of some solid spot from which they might draw strength and hope. It was very sobering. And for those justified by faith through Jesus, he has set this fixed point for us, the certain hope, the sure hope of God's glory in our future, such that we need never break. The sure hope of what we see on display in Jesus' own resurrected, glorified body after his resurrection. For us in Christ, this is now your destiny. This is what you can boast in, that Jesus has done this for you. Those who follow after Jesus have no guarantee of a life free from suffering, but they do have this sure hope of his glory in the end, revealed, triumphant. Most of us, I think, are oppressed by thoughts of the future, dogged by questions about our relationships, challenges in our marriages, undone by uncertainty in work and the decisions or tasks that await us, undone by the thought of loneliness in the decades ahead or concern for our children and the world they will inherit. All of these things are real causes of concern. I in no way mean to dismiss them. Yet according to Paul, they are not the dominant features on the horizon for those in Christ. Rather, the future is defined by the radiant display of God's glory. His glory revealed in creation, in all things, and at work in us. Reflecting on this passage this week, this image came to mind of our lives of faith. As this length of rope or thread between two fixed points. On one end is the fixed point of Jesus' death upon the cross for our justification. The fixed point through which we have peace with God, access into grace. 
this undeniable expression of God's desire, love for you, provision for you. That's one fixed point. And on the other end of that thread is the end. God's glory revealed in fullness, without a doubt. The glory of God in all creation and in our lives. And we live between those fixed points. And like a, a thread or rope not drawn too taut, there's flex to our lives. We are buffeted, stressed by the changes and chances of this life, the sufferings we experience. Yet those in Christ are held fast, safe in the boat with Jesus, standing in the realm of grace, such that we need not be undone. Yes, we suffer, and that must be named, lamented over. But in our suffering, we can rejoice. We can boast even, confident that the glory of God will be revealed. That though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, his promise remains. We can even be confident, Paul says, that all that we face is not for nothing that even in the power of God can be used to work the glory of God, the grace of God in us, such that we can with Joseph boast and say what you meant for evil, God has turned for good. We can with Paul speak of what we suffer, that this is no cause for shame because we know whom we believed, we're convinced he's able to guard all that we've entrusted, standing in grace with a new way to suffer. Something has happened. Something has happened to change the whole of our situation, yours and mine. Something in Christ has happened. In him we have peace, we have grace, we have a sure and certain hope. Yet just as these truths are written in Romans, written in scripture, they too must be written in our hearts. And that is the final gift that Paul describes for those in Jesus. In them, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, pours out the love of God. Such that these truths, what I've been talking about, peace, grace, hope for the future, can be confirmed in us. This is the testimony captured in the bulletin quote by Mrs. Elon, on the front of your bulletin who from the experience she describes there, moved forward in this sure knowledge of God's love for her soul. As an indentured servant living in the United States, as a black woman suffering much, she describes this experience of literally milking this cow and having this vision of the Lord. It stands out to me that phrase that she hears the Lord say, I own your name. You belong to me. And the experience she describes is that she has this vision of Jesus and the cow she's milking literally bows and it confirms to her that this is not just in her own mind, but that this is taking place. And she goes from that place convinced, convinced of the love of God, convinced of standing in his peace, being in the realm of grace, convinced of the hope she has. She endures much, suffers much, does much for the cause of Christ. That is God's desire for those in Jesus. Not that you would know simply in the abstract of his love, but that the experience you have, 
that you could name the experience of his love poured out, of being soaked to the very core of your being, and that that would confirm these truths such that you could endure and suffer much and do much, such that you could even rejoice and glory in the sufferings of this life. This morning, I am keenly aware of the weakness of my words to accomplish that. But for these things, we trust that the Holy Spirit has been given to us and is at work today in this room among us. And we trust that it is his desire to pour to the very depths of our being God's love to confirm and render to you a deeper, richer apprehension of his love. And as we respond now in faith, as we, as it were, sing the songs of Zion, and in a few short moments come to this table with a place to stand where he has made room, my prayer is that the love of God would be poured out in your heart in this new way, such that you would know that in Jesus something Something of the inestimable value 